Fabulous with Vibs and Vicky, the ThinkShift podcast for professionals who aspire to be fabulous leaders, those who not only succeed, but also purposefully seek to reinvent the world. Welcome to the Be Fabulous podcast. This is the final episode in our black, brown and white series. In previous episodes, we looked at the world through the lens of a black person, a brown person, and then Vicky with a white person. And in this final episode to wrap up the series, we thought we'd take a look at, based on our experiences, what can we actually do? What can we do at an individual level, a company level, and a societal level to start moving that needle? Welcome to our Be Fabulous podcast. The special series of Black, Brown and White is looking at the the race edition from the perspective of Francesca, the Black, Vips, the Brown and Vicky, the Milky White. In this episode, we are wrapping up what we can do about it at the perspective of society, our companies and us as individuals. So Francesca, from your perspective, when we think about society and this huge issue we have going forward, what can we do? Oh, thank you, Vicky, and it's great to be back with you guys. Um, You know, when we started this journey, it was extremely emotional for me, and I I think you guys will agree with me, and even the listeners, um, I don't know whether whether you felt it. what, What made me broke down was really uh, the issue of my grandson when he, he said that he was turning more black and he was uh, feeling really sad about it. Um, when I heard that, you know, my reaction, my immediate reaction was not anger. It was almost like I felt helpless. I felt, um, it wasn't frustration. It was just more of, okay, I can't let him go through life uh, from this very age, three years old, and continue that journey. I must tell you, um, at this point, things have changed for me. I've, I've made a decision that I'm going to contribute to uh, the change that I want to see for my grandson's future and for every black person, whether it's your grandson, your child, or even yourself. Uh, I want to be um, a contributor to what I'm expecting in the future. What does that mean? Okay, it means that, yes, I will be angry, but I must remember Anger never solves any of the problems that we have. Even at home, if you're just angry, it doesn't solve anything until you're ready to have a conversation, to to present why you're angry and what you're expecting to see uh, as an outcome. So in this uh, regard as well, that's what I'm proposing. So we start from that. I think by now, the whole world, we can agree that the whole world knows why black people are angry. The whole world knows why uh, people are on the street, not just black people on the street, why everybody, why they were on the street. The whole world saw the video, and rightly so. They agree. I've spoken with a lot of white colleagues, brown colleagues, and, you know, everyone in between. We are all in agreement, at least. I think majority of the people are in agreement. So then, what's the next step? 
So the next step for me personally is that with me, what I plan to do about it, how do I want to engage people? How comfortable am I, am I speaking about this subject? Am I ready to discuss it openly? I think so. I mean, look at me on this platform with ThinkShift, talking about this openly and not feeling um, uh, ashamed and not feeling embarrassed and not feeling scared or fearful. At first, I was fearful. I wasn't sure I can begin to have this conversation. And here I am today. And I'm challenging um, every black, brown person because this is a matter that cuts across all race, okay? Everyone has an impact on this. So the first challenge that I'm, I'm throwing out there for everyone is for us to be engaged. We can't hide from this anymore. We need to be engaged. We need to start discussing this. We need to be open about it. We need to be very transparent about it. I think um, when we start from individuals and we move it into a small circle with our friends and uh, you know people within our circle of influence, we begin to uh, take it to the next level where we can even impact the society at large. We can impact how we the decisions we make on the job as a manager, as a leader in organization, we can begin to make those decisions. One of the recommendations I made at first is when you see a black person, and I must tell you, even some black people may be afraid of other black people, maybe because maybe the way they dress, the way they look, the way they talk, and things like that. But what I want to say is this. Ask yourself, what if he's not what you're thinking? That we can all do. What if he's not a criminal? That we can all do. Black to black, brown to black, white to black, you know, whatever combination. We can all ask ourselves that. And when you do that, first of all, you free your mind up to be able to go in a different direction. That Oh, let me give him or her the benefit of a doubt that he's not this or she's not that. I think we can start from there. And then it can make us comfortable talking about this in any setting we're in. Even if they call you at work that, oh, Francesca, do you mind sharing something with us? You're so prepared. You're so ready. We don't need to be emotional about it. It's painful, I must tell you. Every time I think about what my grandson said, yes, it hurts. But you know the good news? I'm taking action. I'm not stuck in that phrase in that mode. I'm not stuck there. I'm taking action. And I think that was the very key that, that brought us to this point uh, with Martin Luther King. He did not sit back and watch things fall apart. He took action. So I think what we're saying is that we, cannot, we can all do it in our individual spaces. And I think that would be the first step. D did I cover what I'd like to... What do you think oh my gosh, Francesca, you covered... You covered so many beautiful points there and, and your, your what if point uh, resonated with me so deeply from the very first time I heard you say it on our solidarity hour. It's just the questioning of beliefs that we don't even know that that we have. Um, Vips, what about you? Anything from a societal perspective before we go into company and individual that yeah. we can be doing? You know, I just want to comment on the what if question very quickly. I, I think um, those who have, you know, had the, the dubious pleasure of being at one of our courses, um, know that, you know, I use what if a lot as a way, what it does is actually it, um, it stops you from acting on your defaults. The minute you ask the question, what if it, it, it stops your brain, it stops your cognitive brain from pattern matching to what you've known in the past. And it allows you to choose something different. So that the power of that phrase is, uh, as, as a, as cognitive value in the, in, in that it will actually intercept what you were going to be, what you were likely to think in the first place, and at least give you the option of thinking something else. 
Now, of course, many people won't think something else, even if they have the option, but many will. And I think that that is the, to me, that's the, if this was a game of poker, that's like anteing up in every round to play. The what if question is like, that's your minimum you pay to be part of the conversation. And, uh, you know, I, I guess at a societal level, um, Vicky, I, I, you know, I, I, tend to, I tend to go back to, um, you know, some of, our, some of our conversations that we've been having on thinking levels uh, in our previous series. And, you know, where I kind of go to is, it, it's, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a number of tactical things I, I personally think needs to happen at a societal level. And I think most of that has got to do with making it appropriate to have the conversations that look at the 10, 15, 20, 100, 200, 300 tactics of small things that every organization, every government department, every policy unit, every school, every university, they're, they're all, they're all going to be very, very small tactics. They're going to be micro changes in the way people recruit, uh, maybe just involving someone else in an interview process that you wouldn't involved otherwise, maybe not being so strict on your, um, or, or maybe not being so honed, strict is the wrong, not the right word, so grooved in your in the way you think about things like cultural fit and the God knows how many assessments that we've created over the course of the, of the last 20 years to help determine, you know, if someone, um, you know, is, go, is going to quote unquote fit in your environment. So I think there's, to me, there's those sorts of tactical things um, that I think is very much within the wheelhouse of probably our listeners. It's, you know, we're generally talking to, executives, presidents, CEOs, these are all, they feel small relative to the grand scale of the challenge, but they, they, they will create momentum. And they won't be easy either. In the context of those organizations, they won't be easy. I think if I sort of drop up a couple of levels uh, and maybe start thinking sort of structured and maybe even systemic, I, I, think, um, I think this is where I, I call upon, you know, the fabulous people inside organizations and, and in society at large to... If I'm brutal, I, I think I want them to see these as in the same way as we would think of five or 10 or 15 year strategic initiatives, not, not what can I do right now to tweet something that might get 100,000 likes or um, tinker around the edges. Tinker, tinker around the edges. And uh, I don't mean this to sound the way it's going to sound, but, but don't treat it like a marketing fad. And I, I, that's not, I'm, I'm not trying to be insulting to marketers. I'm, I'm trying to articulate that we're going to need 4,000 marketing fads, one a quarter for the next 50 years. Uh, it, it's such a long, long tail. It's such a long, um, I don't know, training regime. <laughs> um, had a, a, you know, if you think about it like an athlete. And uh, I, I worry sometimes that when we, when we over-index on the quick win, we actually take posit- we take the energy away from the slower pace. You know, put simply, I would much rather we we figure out how to le- how to run, you know, six or seven minute miles and keep that going for for a hundred miles, rather than trying to do a you know break the four minute mile um, and think we think we had a really good twenty twenty, which of course would be I, I don't even know how you could anyone is going to have a good twenty twenty um, in the grand scheme of things. But I, but I think structurally, you know, if I can have organizations, business leaders, executives, companies, think tanks, think about this through the lens of 5, 10, 15, 20 years, 
not through the lens of next month, um, next month, next quarter, maybe. That's a better way of looking at it. And then we get to societal. And then I think then I think things are beginning to happen. I think they're getting sort of caught in the in the north. We we haven't they haven't bubbled to the surface enough. But I, I think, you know, you do need you do need assemblies, you do need councils, you do need a systemic rethink of criminal justice, you do need to have a systemic rethink of the contract between between um, citizen and state and how that's serving some constituencies better than others and how it systemically, you know, disadvantages black people in particular. Um, but I think that's, you know, right through our education system, right through our criminal justice system, right through our financial and our economic system in relation to equality of income. And I think something we're gonna, or wealth maybe is a better way of saying it, not income, wealth. And I think that there's, um, there's, a, there's a really, really big question that I think we'll get to later on, which is at some point, those who are in privilege have to decide to have less in order for those who have less privilege to have more. And that to me is the big conversation that I, I don't know if is really, I, I'm not hearing the amplitude of that conversation as much as I would like. And uh, we, we kind of kicked that off in actually Francesca's podcast um, that, I, that I was you know, lucky enough to participate in last week. And I think, the, I think the more we can start having those sorts of conversations, the more we're gonna be, um, and doing things about them, the more we're gonna start seeing the downstream positive impact. Otherwise, I think it's gonna be really, really hard to look at race through the lens of race alone without looking at race through the lens of equity and privilege. And I mean, at an economic system level. Okay, we're gonna come into the conversation about white privilege towards the end as we look at the individual. So let's dive into uh, organizationally and I'll, I'll kick us off that. So there are four different pillars that organizations can look at when they're thinking about how do they set themselves up for the five, 10, 15 year journey that you described. And the first is, is the foundation. So, while it's good to look at uh, uh, unconscious bias training and, and recruitment and what we're doing there from a diversity perspective, there's a much bigger need to go on the 5, 10, 15 year journey. And the foundations is the start. So what actually is the challenge about here? So creating an environment conversations around the history of where we've got to today and why we are where we are today is really, really important because most people don't really understand the history of of the different minorities and majorities in the country and why things are the way they are and how history has shaped the world in terms of, of the, the world we inhabit today. And then there needs to be this agreement on safety. So if we don't feel safe, nobody's gonna have the right kinds of conversations. And if uh, we are making uh, the white C-suite feel like USA is going to be targeted, that's not going create an environment where they're going to want to tackle change. So creating some sort of safety agreements in organizations where everybody watches what they're saying and the impact of what they're saying, but they're also not persecuted and looked at in every single way for, for anything they say that could be um, causing harm when there's no intention. It's more of a learning moment. It has to be thought of in that way. And, and looking at our, our biases. So the unconscious bias training is great because it helps people understand things that they never knew were going on with them in the first place. And that's the first step is to create awareness of what actually is going on in terms of our biases that we had no idea going into. 
know, the number of conversations I've had with white executives where they're like, well, I've got a very diverse team. I hire diverse, my team's diverse. This isn't my problem. And <laughs> it makes me smile. And then we go into deeper conversations around some of the examples of, of the decisions we're making day in, day out that we have no idea we're making just based on how we grow up in the world. And then um, finally, as part of the foundations, we have to decide what game we're playing. Uh, Vips loves to use the phrase of chess, checkers or go. Um, you know, what, what are our commitments? Are we in the short game? Are we in the long game? Um, you know, chess is thinking two or three moves ahead. And uh, or are we just playing checkers, which is a much more tactical uh, move based game? Where are we going and what does that look like? And until we take off the foundations in the right way, then everything else has nothing. It's like, it's like building a house on sand. It's got nothing to structure itself to. It needs to be built on solid foundations. And these are the first elements of a great foundation that we think are really important to put in place. Chris, why don't you talk us through uh, reinventing hiring? Yeah. That's our that, next important thing. Yeah. So, I mean, I think once you've got your foundations and you kind of realize what game you want to play, then... then to, to me, um, we, hiring has a disproportionate impact in this area because it's the gate. It, it's the gate into the system that is an organization. And um, that's really tough because most organizations now have extremely well-tuned and, you know, very operationalized and, you know, well-oiled machine recruitment functions. And, you know, they measure everything. You know, how many people sourced? How many, how, many, how many resumes did you look on on LinkedIn? How many interviews? I mean, it's, we've got it down to such a metric-driven process that, it, that it's, it, it is, there's no way that that process isn't going to create more of what we have because it's so optimized for it. So, you know, the way I look at it is widen the aperture. We, we, have, to, we have to create space, not, and I, I mean time and energy, for our recruitment and talent professionals to really widen the aperture. I, I've got to look in places I, weren't looking, I wasn't looking before. You know, I, I, where I see this a lot um, I, I, as an example is this is something I never used to see in England so much, but I see it in the U.S. Particularly for graduate recruitment, people like to recruit from there, from wherever they studied, right? So, you know, I went to Notre Dame, so I'm going to recruit from Notre Dame. I went to whatever. I mean, pick your UCLA, yeah, yeah. so I'm going to recruit from you. And it's almost like a community thing. That's, that's my way of giving back to the institution that got me to where I was. But, but if you think about it, that's also going to create more of the same, right? Now, one way or the other, if you, if you happen to predominantly recruit of campuses and environments that were disproportionately white, guess what you're going to have? You're going to have disproportionately white candidates. So that, that's what I mean by widening the aperture, being able to look at maybe institutions or, or experience sets maybe that aren't so traditional, no, so not traditional, aren't the ones that will have already systemically disadvantaged black people in the first place. So widening the aperture, I think we've got to look at our filters as well. And that's a really, to me, that's, that's one way of, of um, that's a specialization, if you like, of unconscious bias. So where is the unconscious bias showing up in our filters during recruitment at every step of the process? You know, there's at the, you know, how you look at a LinkedIn pro, uh, um, resume. How do you react to someone's Facebook posts if they have certain pictures in there? How do you react to the way someone shows up and greets you? at an interview, whether it's on Zoom or, or, in, or if you're lucky enough to meet, meet another human being in person right now safely. Um, so I, resetting filters is a very individual thing, but it's going to disproportionately impact talent professionals. And then I think you've got the other one, which is, um, I call it the hiring decision. And we can all relate to this, I'm sure. It's like, 
So you've done everything. You've set your process up to be really inclusive and diverse and you've got a gazillion candidates. And then the hiring manager or the hiring executive or the CEO just comes and says, I don't like that person. I want to hire this person. Yeah. And the process almost doesn't matter at that point. There's, yeah, I hear you. I hear you. But I'm going to go with this one. And that's another version of, sub, of unconscious bias playing out at, ex, at an executive level. Um, and, you know, that's a really tough one. I, I know that there are people I am going to bias towards just by virtue of having worked with them for 20 years. Well, that's the danger of the hippo, the highest paid person's opinion. That's right. That is exactly that. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, especially, people def- people, especially the decision people makers. People default to that. Yeah. Uh, of course. I, I'm working with a group right now where, you know, if the hippo is in the room, the whole recruiting group just defaults to whatever they say, no matter what they felt in the recruiting process. If that person speaks first, then they will go with whatever that person says, as opposed to, hey, here's the examples I picked up, here's where I'm concerned, here's what we might want to think about. It literally is another example of a default to the HIPAA. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also at an organizational cultural level, this is the price we pay for having organizations that over-index on positional power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when we, because organizations that index on, on positional power, they will engender what you described as hippo behaviors. Um, I'm just seeing these little hippos flying around in my head right now. Uh, <laughs> yeah, such, a, such a cute word for something for that something's quite so horrible, isn't it, really? Yeah, I, it's, it's very, it's very, yeah. We made anything you need, need to think of a term that's maybe. Well, I, uh, I heard it at the beginning of this year at a workshop I was running, and I thought, man, that's such a great term. I've never heard it before. Well, if you think about it, hippo is also the same as hypo in, in letters, right? Well, uh-huh. it's got so, an extra P. It's, it's an extra P, yeah. But, it's, but even that, even that, you know, gets you in trouble. Uh, One-year commitment. And, and this is the, the last part. Of, I, I, to me, most organizations still can't wrap their head around that recruitment should not be evaluated based on the number of hires. It should be evaluated on the quality of those people one year on or six months on, you know, some, some period of time on. Because I think what we've, otherwise what it does is we, we play the short-term game, we play checkers and we, we make the numbers work out, but, but they leave or they feel disenfranchised or the environment isn't set up for them to succeed. And then what happens is they don't succeed and they don't get those pay, pay rises, promotions and more responsibilities. And you've just created a feedback loop that tells you you shouldn't have hired those black or ethnic minority people in the first place and you're back at square one. And so to me, you know, that, that's, that, that macro for reinventing hiring, that's, that's huge. There's going to be organizations going to have to spend one, two, three years uh, working on that, refining that. It's, you know, it's process-centric, it's structural, it's, it's often it's going to inv- involve changing, you know, key parts of your talent team. That's hard. That's really, really hard. Yeah. Yeah, and it's hard to shift them from a trans- transactional bums on seats model to a long-term year two, three down the line is all a good fit. Yeah, and many organizations don't want to do that, right? Because that's inefficient, you know? So there's a price, there's a real price to pay for all of these things um, if, you want to do, if you want to tackle them. I'll go on to uh, reinventing managing the MIPS, the third pillar. So the thing we think about is managing respectfully. So as we think about the cultural context, it becomes really important thinking about uh, others, racism, and our ability to do the job with empathy, what does that really look like? And it ties into what we call feed forward. Uh, how do you be the best you can be going forward? 
because it's hard enough to give somebody feed forward in the best of times. When there's this whole dimension of race kicking in, the avoidance strategy feels like a much easier strategy than to go in and have the conversations that need to happen because we may not know the words and how to do it well, and now we're worried about the race angle, which ties into performance. So we have to have trust in our performance review system and that if there's a job to do and their goals to be had, it's not to do with race, it's about what is required to move the organization forward and people get treated fairly um, and are, are given the opportunities fairly based on whatever the goals and the role is. Vicky, I, I want to, Which leads can, us can to I comment on that really quickly? Uh, I was talking to a CEO about this very phenomenon, okay, the, the mutual avoidance of feed forward. And, and this, is, this, 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 this CEO is also from a minority background, so I want to put that out there. But in, in a coaching conversation, where that went to was, I don't know if I know how to have a conversation without tripping over something that's going to appear racist. I don't know how to have a conversation which is going to, which is, which isn't going to, you know, trip someone up who's um, from the LGBTQ community. Okay, I don't know how. Like, it's like I feel hopelessly inequipped to be able to have any conversation. The only strategy I can think of is just say nothing. <laughs> like, so I, I think the point is that mutual avoidance cycle becomes so much stronger when you layer on all of these. I'll give you another example. I'm, I'm working with a, a team where individuals on a performance improvement plan are black. And now because of what's going on, the, the executive has been told categorically that if the performance doesn't improve, he has to keep this individual. He cannot tackle that situation like he normally would because it's not going to be seen to be okay. And that just makes me so sad. And the individual has said, you know, the only reason I'm in this job is because I'm black, right? because you would have kicked me out by now because I'm not doing a great job. You know? And what kind of message does that send to the individual and the organization? Because we're in these tricky times where people don't know what to do. And that's not good. You know, that, nobody wants to feel like they're charity or there's pity taken on them. You know? I, I also think this is where objectivity comes into play. We need to be very objective when we are dealing with uh, feedback, feed forward. We need to be very specific because most of the time, these are all very subjective. But when you, you have whether or not white, it doesn't matter. Let's just make sure we clearly state what the expectation is. And it's easy to measure whether we got there. I mean, smart goal might be uh, overrated, but I think in this instance, maybe this is the time we can bring it forward so that we, we're specific in what is being considered. And then if, if, if an executive or a manager needs to take action, you have basis to take the action, follow the normal protocol. Yes, you're supposed to do A, you did not do A, you did B, or you did nothing, right? Yeah. There's no argument about that because it, it was clearly stated um, up front. And I've seen examples where despite that, the politics dictate that you can't do anything and shouldn't do anything about it. So it's like, which is terrible for the individual, it's terrible for the rest of the team, it's terrible for the manager, yeah, and, all, and, it, and it really boils down to legal risk. If we let this person go, we might get sued. And, and that's even when you have objective criteria. So the, the, there's always going to be a, um, I don't know, uh, uh, whether you want to call it a business decision or a political decision or uh, you know, external factors that are going to play into it. And it's, it's hard. And I, I don't think there's any straight answers for it other than, I mean, to me, where we have to get to is, the only way you're going to be able to navigate that is if people experience you as a high integrity leader in the first place. If they experience you as just the pencil pushing manager, then you're in real trouble. It's going to, it will go wrong. And, and this is kind of, you know, 
to, to bang our personal power drum. This is why personal power is so important because if you don't have that loyalty and trust and a sense of integrity coming out of the person that you are as opposed to what you do, then you, you, you can't handle, you, it's like you're ill-equipped as a character to be able to deal with, these, with this kind of complex issue. It's very hard. Mm. Which leads us to the fourth part of, of reinventing how we think about managing, and it's developing the, uh, the nose for avoiding landmines. Um, so knowing where and how your words may land with different audiences that you're part of, that before you may have been a little bit more flippant, now you're starting to think about the cultural nuances of everything you say and why you say it. And it becomes something that's so important that uh, most managers haven't had to think about in a way that they're having to think about right now. So let's take us through the last pillar about leadership conviction. Yeah, and this one's the one where it's almost like, it, it's, are you really, do you really want to do something over the long term that will tangibly move the needle as opposed to, you know, the quick wins, if you like, or the, or the short-term mindset. And, and this is really hard because remember, most executives don't stay executives for very long, particularly at the very top. I mean, they, they churn quite quickly, right? So, you know, firstly, it's not even clear often whether there is a, you know, a board level mandate really, you know? So that's, that's one dimension. But when I think of leadership conviction, to me, it's more about, particularly for businesses, they do exist to make money and to make profit. There's no, there's no escaping that. So anything that is going to create systemic change inside an organization is going to have a short-term impact on that because there's a cost of change. Um, now, you could argue that over time that's going to get better and it's actually be in a much better place, and I believe that, but that doesn't mean that you, you might not have the time to tolerate, tolerate the down level for six months, a year, two years, three years, four years, and therefore, um, whatever you're going to be able to do, the pacing and the investments that you're going to be able to make against some of the things we talked about are going to be constrained by, quite frankly, how profitable you are as a business and how much you can afford to spend in this area and invest in this area relative to all the other gazillion demands that people, people have on you as a, as a leader. So to me, that, that's... You know, that's always going to be a constraint. And I think the, the, be, the earlier we engage in that conversation, we know what constitutes a stretch for that environment rather than just feeling angry all the time that an environment's not doing enough. And this is the one that I hope, you know, to me, this is the think shift difference. I, I would like all of our employees for any company that we work with, black, white, brown, um, or any minority, uh, to... to please understand against the constraints of what a business can sustain rather than perpetually being really unhappy about not doing enough. Because while it might not be enough, it might be all that they can sustain. And there's a reality to that that needs to be taken into account. And it's hard. It's hard when, when we're in such an emotional place, uh, particularly on the topic of, of race. But ultimately, you know, these people need to be able to do these and deliver financial results and keep their jobs. Otherwise, it doesn't really matter. They're not going to be able to hold on the agenda anyway of, of improvement. The I mean, second one is um, giving DNI teeth uh, or DEI teeth. I, I, it, it's, it's, it's almost too convenient sometimes to um, recruit someone and make them a DEI leader. The, the question is, how, how does that person slash agenda slash team slash the, the structure in which they're operating in actually have real teeth? 
And I think organizations have to think about that because today they're predominantly, most, most DEI leaders I've come, come, come in um, contact with are really high influence roles. They have, you know, they're, they're there to have an influence and an input into many areas. They may have some level of autonomy around, around learning or training or compliance around, around um, diversity, inclusion, or equity, or unconscious bias or whatever. But, but to me, uh, real teeth looks like budget numbers, you know, straight up money. And it also looks like how well can you, I mean, put simply, how well can you fire someone for infringements? Yeah. That, or, or at least have a say that's less than, um, that's taken seriously at the table, maybe is the best way to say it. I, 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 don't, I don't know if we've structurally given our DNI leaders teeth today. Yeah, and that's hard because you is a person in HR and it's kind of like, good luck, you know, go, go forth and, and create diversity. And that's, that's, not, that's not... I don't think you can do it that way. I think you'd have to create councils and, you, I mean, you have to, you have to create yeah. a cause around it so that it's more... That, 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 that objective is distributed and diffused into your managers and executive community. It's how I, I think, think of... Uh, Francesca? Yeah, I was saying that I almost think they might even need an association where they can come together and develop uh, specifics that they can work by, um, you know, develop uh, best practices or come with ideas that can be cross-pollinated across various organizations. Because, I mean, I'm just thinking about all these um, leaders that were appointed as uh, DEI leaders. I, I, felt, I feel for them because... Yeah. They don't have any, I mean, did anybody go to school to study how to do this thing? It doesn't even exist. So everybody's going in and trying to come up with what they think will work. It's even worse than that, Francesca. So many of these roles are given to people as development opportunities. It's an opportunity to step up. It's an opportunity, which, I mean, I don't get me wrong. It's just, it just like, wow, that's, that's making something impossibly hard, even harder. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, yeah. I, I mean, and, and I understand why. I, I do understand why, but it's wow. Talk about talk about a tough job made ten times tougher. Um, yeah. So, um, but then the on the other side of the coin is that I don't even think there's anyone that can say they're qualified for this role. It does not exist. So we need to start from somewhere. So that's why I was thinking, let's come. You know, let them come together, have an association. You know, American Association of blah blah blah, right? Yeah. And then they begin to explore what they can do. Now, it's unfortunate that the, what you just described, Vips, that it's a developmental opportunity. That's a shame because that's a setup to fail. That well, it, well, it, well, well, it's, it's definitely sink or swim. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it, it should not be a role that would be called um, opportunity, you know, personal yeah. development opportunity because it's so massive. This is huge. We're talking about systemic changes, it's, it's organizational changes, and you just dump it on somebody's lap to just, you know, well, kind of just... I mean, I, I don't think people are doing that intentionally. I, I think that's the consequence of good intentions. And, and you know, it, it's, it's, this, this one to me is so fascinating because I've just in the last sort of month or so, um, you know, I've spoken to DEI leaders or, or people who have been appointed, I should say. People who have been appointed DEI leaders who are black. People who have been appointed DEI, DEI leaders who are white. Um, and, and, and actually one who's brown, now that I think about it, right? Um, and, and, and it's, they're, they're kind of all experiencing what they experience to be their handicaps through their lens. It's really, really tough. 
it's super hard. It's like um, I was speaking to one white DEI leader, and this person was, uh, there's no way I can, there's no way I can succeed because I'm white. Okay. Then I spoke to a black DEI leader. There's no way I can succeed because I'm black. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Hold on. Then I spoke to the brown one, and the brown one was like, "I'm not totally sure what I'm doing." Right. <laughs> <laughs> now, maybe that was the wise one. I don't know. Right. But but it's very interesting, right? Like when when you when you when you when there's this kind of um, well, I actually think is a, is a truism of leadership. I've yet to found a lead find a leader who truly feels they know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Right. But, but, but the thing is, if you haven't had sufficient runs on the board to realize that actually no one really knows what they're doing and they're kind of all making up as they go along. Some, just, some people have just got better at it. They have a better track record. They are, they are groove better. They have cumulative wealth of knowledge and experience in many, many domains. That means that their educated guesswork is better than most people's analysis. Um, it's hard. It's really, really tough. Um, but, but it just made me laugh. I just wanted to share that. <laughs> It's not easy. Well, it makes me it makes me think of uh, the the Swiss system. So I used to love traveling into Switzerland uh, with a South African passport because it was the one place you didn't need a visa, because they have all the little old ladies that govern the state. You know, they make sure that if you or you don't belong, you know, your papers they catch. You. So it's almost like we need DEI to have the same type of of teeth where everybody polices across an organization and it's no longer a person. Yeah. Although you have to start somewhere. So Vips, uh, I know we need to move on. So the last couple in leadership conviction before we look at the individual. Yeah, they, 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 to me, it's the hard trade-offs. The hard trade-offs and what is winning. Like the reality is that there, there's no, there is no way to make progress on these topics, on, on race, without there being difficult choices and difficult trade-offs. And when you have difficult trade-offs, something gets more and something else gets less. That's, that's, that's the essence of a trade-off. And, you know, I... I I I think that it's too easy for companies to treat DEI like a training problem and feel they've done their thing. And and I'm not, I mean, we make our money doing training and learning and development. So that's not a, but it, my, my point is it's a, I mean, it's like entry point. It's like basic arithmetic. You know, we need to move to cal- the calculus of, of, um, of the hard trade-offs. And that, that to me is a leadership choice. And in my experience, particularly when I'm working with CEOs and presidents, it's very important for them to know what winning looks like, not just success in metrics and goals, but, but, but how does this feel like I'm winning? Because I, I need to experience this as something positive. I need to experience this as something that we're making, you know, where's the win? Like, and, and at an organizational level, I think that's really important to define for something like this. Otherwise, I think you can end up with very aspirational aspirational missions that kind of all feel quite vanilla when you look at them across organizations. But there isn't this like collective fight towards something that feels like winning. And um, yeah, I would like to see a bit more of that. We should move on beyond that. Okay, um, we're going to move to the individual. Um, so, Fisca, do you have some points to share? Yeah, I, I actually do. Um, so the first thing I, I would like to say is that um, we should not aim to just hire blacks. We should aim to hire talents that are black. And there are companies that have quality talents that can be brought into organizations. And when you do this, 
uh, what happens is you can mitigate some of the issues that Vips was describing before. You have somebody, non-performing uh, person, that wants to sue because what have you. Um, it does cost to get quality, right? So to get a quality person, um, black or whatever color, it comes with a price tag. But if the goal is to be able to do this and do it right and be able to sustain it, then it's worthwhile going after that quality. The second point I want to bring out is on using two approaches. Um, as Vips was discussing the societal approach, I thought we can have a bottom-up for the society, bottom-up. So from pre-K, we introduce this subject. By the time they turn 18, they already have a good concept of what we're talking about, how to relate with one another. So you do the bottom-up. Then the top-down is what you've been describing, which is, okay, I'm already formed. I'm a, the CEO, the CFO, the, all that. You know, I'm already formed. That's, that's what's expected of me. I need to know how to navigate this new environment that we're operating in. You may also have some middle approach, which I think is important to bring up. Um, so <clears throat> if you think about it, you're not at the very high level. You're at the middle level. That middle level, what do you need to do? How do you navigate the new environment, black, brown, or white? Everybody needs to get that. You're already out of college. You have your bachelor, master's, what have you. But you're not way at the top there. You're in the middle. So there needs to be something that will bridge the top and bridge the bottom. Now, all this thing I described, is, it's, it's going to take I don't know how long, but we can take baby steps to start the process. Now, I want to mm -hmm. talk about the financial component of this because I'm in finance, okay? And all these things we're talking about, is, it all boils down to money. So imagine you are the CEO and somebody is saying you need to do all these investments, you need to train, you need to do this, and you need to do that. All roads lead to finance, okay? So... I want to speak to the CEOs, okay? Now, there are a couple of things that could be done to do this. Number one, I want you to engage your lobbyist to reach out to Washington and see how we can have some tax benefit as a result of this investment, yeah. okay? Because this is for uh, humanity. This is for the society. This is to make our uh, society more just, more equitable, and all that. So it's not cost of sale, Okay, this is not your cost of goods sold. So it's worth it. If you can get the tax benefit, so that investment is going to be worthwhile. So once you get that tax benefit, then you can put it to good use in your organization. So you don't need to worry about, oh my goodness, we have to spend $2 million for this thing or $5 million, whatever it is that you need to spend. So you've already covered your bases at, on all sides. Now you just need to invest in the quality uh, organizations that will move you to that level. So I know I've said quite a few things in a few minutes, uh, but I think it's very critical because we're talking to a number of stakeholders here, whether you are the individual that's working or you're the CEO that's making the de decision. It has to be win-win for everybody. I'm not proposing that CEOs spend $10 million and uh, it's like, okay, it's going into a black hole. I have no way to recover that or I might even go bankrupt during the process. No, I think we need to begin to look at the different ways to make it happen and make sure it's sustainable. And when it comes to the investment from the bottom up, definitely. That's with our, uh, you know, the, the, the government, the cities, the states, you introduce it to education or department of education and all that. Private school can start the process. You'll be of the game if you're a private school and you start this process. So 
it's going to be win-win for everybody. So I'm sorry if I took you off a different route, but I think no. it's important for... No, not okay. at all. Not at all. I, I think, the, I mean, you, you hit on, on the, you know, the systemic issue, the role that government and, you know, uh, whether it's state governments, federal governments, governments around the world, they, I mean, we haven't, as a government infrastructure, used the tax system to help. I mean, we just haven't. Um, but I think this is kind of a nice way of implementing what Vicky calls as the handicap. Um, it, it's, it's a way of doing that, which which actually allows capitalism to work for you rather than work, work against you from, from the agenda of discrimination. I think it's, it's, uh, it's um, and I know actually there's lots of people who are modeling that kind of thing. I, I think we need a different political climate before uh, such options become viable. Um, so we, we probably don't have that option for a few years yet, <laughs> I would imagine. All right, so we need to wrap up, guys. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll give my last thoughts, and then if you could do the same, and we will, we will end our lovely be fabulous uh, series with Francesca. So for me, for those that are, are white, that are, are milky white or different shades of white, accept that there is such a thing as white privilege. You heard us discuss it in the last uh, episode. We don't recognize that we have it, but we do. The fact that we are treated differently when we walk into organizations or stores or airports or immigration or visas, I mean, you name it, you, you start to pay attention, you'll see that it's there, it's, it's a real thing. So recognize it, look for it, and start conversations about it, and start questioning whether you'll be prepared to take that handicap. And ask why, you know, ask, ask what if and ask why as you start to see others of color. Francesca, your closing, closing remarks? You know, I want to say that I'm so excited to be part of this conversation. And I think this is just the beginning. And I want to thank you, Thinkship, for taking the lead on this. Um, it's phenomenal. I think this is going to be, um, it's going to be a transforming um, step for humanity. And I am seeing this not only for the United States. I'm seeing this as uh, something that would benefit the whole world, okay? Uh, Eight billion people. This is going to be massive. It's going to be great. And I am so excited to be part of the conversation and to be part of the solution. And I want everybody to find a way to plug themselves in there are so many ways to get plugged in to drive this conversation forward in a positive way. And that's what I'm doing. And you guys, Vips and Vicky, you know I've started the podcast on reimagining black relations. I mean, yes. I, I, can't, I can never, ever imagine myself doing that. But here I am and speaking comfortably with you guys. It's awesome. I, I just want to challenge everyone to find their own space and begin to move things forward. And what about for those that feel angry, Francesca? Yeah, and rightly so. What is your advice to them? Well, I, I, and I said, I said, it's okay to be angry, but we need to get to a point where, okay, what do we do now? Do, do we want to continue to be angry or do we want a change so that we don't need to be angry anymore? I want to assume it's the latter, not the former. So we want a change so that we won't need to be angry anymore. So um, I was angry too, but not anymore, right? I'm ready to make the change. And you can see I'm passionate about the subject. I'm energized about the subject. And I think we can all be on that page, moving it forward in a positive way. And I think to Vicky's point as well, the uh, helpers, we, we need them on our side, okay? We need them to, to support us, to understand what we're discussing. So we don't want them to hide away or shy from that conversation. We want them to be part of it and, and partner with us as we move the agenda forward. That's great. That's part of, 
uh, closing comments? I, I don't want to follow up, Francesca. I always feel like um, I'm not worthy of following her up. Um, I, I think true. probably all That's I will say true. is... Francesca, you're the only one that he feels that about, so it's a special <laughs> honour for you, my friend. I mean, it's coming from her soul. You can hear it's coming from her soul. I think where I want to end is probably just have us reflect on the series. I think it's really interesting how the first, the first one on Black, that you know, when Francesca was the focus point, was pretty intense. It was intense. It was really heavy. And, and then the second one was maybe a little bit less intense. And the last one that Vicky did was probably a little bit less intense again. And maybe that's something to say about our characters. I don't know. But may, maybe it's also just got something to do with the fact that that's a very visceral expression of the injustices that black people, brown people, any, any, any race that's being discriminated against is experiencing. And I know for a fact that just doing this series with Francesca and Vicky, I know it certainly made me aware of certain things that, you know, I, I've just, I've been more colorblind, I guess, because of my heritage and my background. And I think the downside of being colorblind was you didn't realize that, that certain minorities had it 10 times worse than you thought they did because you were blind to it. Um, so on the one hand, you weren't racist, if you like, but you also were oblivious to the, um, to the you know, systemic inequity challenges. And I think with that, all I want to say is a huge thank you. This was, uh, this was, this was a tough one to do as a series. I, I think we did it in a way that was uniquely Think Shift. Um, I, Francesca, if it hadn't have been for um, uh, you know, your drive and quite frankly, how you showed up at Solidarity Hour when we did it, I don't know, three months ago or two months ago now, um, it would never have happened. And, uh, and, and Vicky, um, thank you for doing one that was very exposing. I know it was exposing for me, it was exposing for Francesca, and it was exposing for you. So I'm humbled to be in your company, and I thank you same, both. Same here. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I'm looking forward to something great in the future. You guys are fabulous. Thank you, my friends. To the, the fabulous three of us, it's been wonderful. And to everyone else, be fabulous. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time.